Welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, often avoided, or even ignored. Prostate cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Raymond Poole from County Wicklow in Ireland, who is both campaigner and advocate for better treatment and more honest discussion about the impact of prostate cancer on men's lives. Following the prostate cancer diagnosis and subsequent treatment, he has used both poetry and prose to express his emotions, communicate his experience with honesty and humor, and inspire others to develop their voice and make better choices about their prostate cancer support and treatment. He's Irish, so that may not come as a surprise. In our conversation today, he'll comment on some of his experiences with prostate cancer by drawing on passages in his books, Nothing So Bad It Couldn't Be Worse, and Taking the Piss Out of Cancer. You're in for a treat. Raymond, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks, Claire. It's wonderful to be um, talking to you and great to get the voice out there about prostate cancer in men because it's not spoken about enough. Indeed, indeed. And you are my, my first Irish guest, so um, I want to commend you for that and it's very exciting. Great, yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> you, you know what happens when the Irish start talking, you don't shut us up. <laughs> I, I, I do indeed. So without further ado, let's just launch into the very beginning of your journey and ask you to give a short summary of, of when and how you were diagnosed with prostate cancer and, and what happened afterward. Sure, yeah. It started back in um, 2016. I went, I go every year for an annual blood test and in my um, late 40s, I asked the doctor to add in the PSA one. And in um, July 2016, when I was 53, my PSA rose and he asked me to come back four weeks later and it risen again. And then he decided, okay, you got to go see a specialist, which I did. Then later that year, towards the end of that year, the, the December timeframe, I got biopsies done which was a, a journey in its own right, because although I got over 20 biopsies from the prostate, none of them were cancerous, but I ended up with sepsis, which uh. then brought me on a, on a journey uh. into numerous infections. But mm -hmm. the great thing about getting the sepsis was I actually had aggressive cancer. So if I hadn't got sepsis, I would have thought I was okay, and I could have ended up with stage four cancer. So it's the sepsis in a strange way that saved my life. Gosh, how did that translation actually happen? The sepsis actually led to that discovery or that diagnosis? Yeah, well, what happened then when I went in, I ended up going having to go to hospital for 11 days just before Christmas in 2016. And my PSA in July it was at 9.5. It had gone up to 10, I think, or 10.5 in four-week period. Then by December, it was up to 19.5. So they knew at that stage things were going in the wrong direction, you know? Mm. So... Um, but look, listen, um, as you well know, men can have a PSA reading in the hundreds and it still doesn't mean that they're going to have to get a, a radical prosectomy or anything. They can maybe treat it differently. It's only an indicator. Indeed. It doesn't mean you definitely have cancer. It has to be followed up. Well, I would prefer it to be followed up by um, an MRI and then a targeted biopsy rather than a random biopsy like I had first, you know. So what happened then when, when you actually got the correct diagnosis? Actually, I, I ended up with a different consultant who very skillfully managed me. On, and I was only in hindsight and reflection, I realized just what he was doing. And he was managing really my expectations, my concerns and my worries. And he gave me an in-depth talk about what the prostate was all about, how bad the cancer was and the options that were open to me. So there were some options that weren't and there were some options that were and then the ones that were open to me, he made sure I went and visited each um, individual specialist consultant to talk about those options. 
And, and which option did you ultimately choose or pursue? I, I yeah, I ended up getting um, robotic um, radical prosectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, just the, the the consultant who was managing me, um, he didn't do it. He he did keyhole or he did open surgery, but he didn't do robotic surgery. So he referred me to his colleague who was just a couple of doors down from his office, and um, I got. Uh, I think it was a six-hour sh- surgery or something I was in there for. Um, it, it went extremely well, the surgery. Um, I got it done in, in the afternoon, and the following morning, they had me up out of bed in the shower. Um, of course, me being the man that I am, thinking, oh, I can't move. <laughs> I've just had major surgery. Mm-hmm. But I had, this, I had this lovely lady. I called her maid, Marion. Mm-hmm. And um, she was a lady that looked to me as if she was in her 60s. She was like a healthcare worker. Mm-hmm. She wasn't a nurse. And she just said, I'm here to get you into the shower this morning. And um, sure enough, she got me in the shower. She hosed me down. She looked after me so well. And, um, you know, you're, you're, you're a bit, I suppose, worried. You got tubes coming out of you everywhere and you're either going to fall out or something. But she really looked after me well. And so, I mean, then uh, the following day, then I was home. The surgeon did his job, um, and and that's the thing I think about, and not just prostate cancer, any major illness, but in, you know, cancer in particular. Having seen so many people have different forms of cancer, the surgeons do a wonderful job. They get you better. They get, the, you know, they hopefully they get the cancer out or they get rid of it for a period of time. But then you're sort of left with the side effects thereafter. So for me, that that translated into um, permanent incontinence and permanent erectile dysfunction. So they were two things that I had to get my head around, get used to it. I remember saying to the nurse at the very early stages, uh, you have a bag on you for a week and um, then you go in after your week of surgery and then they take, remove the bag from you and they lay you down on a table and they say, you know, breathe in and they take the bag off. And then they say, no, get up very slowly because you may leak when you get up. And of course, they give you um, some pads or whatever to wear uh, as you're getting up. Mm-hmm. But um I think on my second visit to that urology nurse, I said to them, please um, stop calling it leakage. I was expecting a drip. I had a tsunami. Now, I was just unfortunate. Um, I ended up for just over three months having to wear full nappies because the bladder just lost total control. So I was filling about anything between five and seven nappies a day. Um, But the wonderful thing was once I lay down in bed in the evening, I I had no leakage whatsoever. did help that um, at least I got comfort when I went to bed at night, you know. So, Ray, I mean, you've been through, gosh, sepsis, and then you've had the erectile dysfunction and the incontinence. How has this experience inspired you to write? I, I guess what, what it all started off with was um, when I got the um, diagnosis, I got it on a Friday, I think, and that Sunday I just sat in front of my computer and started typing. Um, I didn't know what I was typing. I was just typing, and it was a dialogue. It ended up being a dialogue about two vices in my head, um, sort of sitting back and reviewing everything that was happening to me. But in a very, I, I call it sort of like the non-PC book about PC because um, <laughs> it's just it's just pure dialogue, you know. And had you there, written before? Would you have described yourself as a writer prior to this? No, definitely no? not. No, really? No, no. Okay. No. And it's just something that I'll read you an extract from the two. So basically, it's two vices. um, And it's written very much in the sense of two Dublin lads having a conversation about me. um, And I'm a third party. And and they're they're just they're they're just totally disregard for any of my feelings or anything. And does this take place in a pub, Ray? 
Nope, doesn't take place in the pub. It just takes place in my head and wherever my head is. And I remember saying to one guy, if I could only get them to shut up now, I'd be happy because uh, every time I would sit down or do something, I'd get, oh, there's another. I should write I should write about that and I should do that. And So actually the book, it's, it's called Taking the Piss Out of Cancer. Um, it actually um, spanned nearly two years, which was never the intention. I only intended it to span about six months. And actually, I ended up finishing it. Um, my dad, during the book, at the end of it, he passed away. You know, they, they even talk about him as well, uh, passing away and how that impacted, you know. So, I mean, it's just one of those things in life. I mean, that's what life is about, you know. Indeed. So let, let's hear the passage that you'd like uh, to share. Okay. So um, I've, I've, I've been visiting a nurse um, so one of the, the things they do is you you visit a nurse. And in my instance, I visit a nurse because of erectile dysfunction, they give you various options um, to see if they can cure this erectile dysfunction. One of them, I, I just nicknamed this nurse, Jackie, and it says, well, nurse Jackie says the pill won't work, but you can get a pump. Then the missus chirps up. Yes, love, I read about them. You can get them online. No feckin' way. Hold it there. Nurse Jackie jumps in and says, no, you can't buy these online. She asks, have you met Rodrigo? He deals with this aspect. But here's a sample of what he, it looks like. Jesus, what did it look like? A feckin' elephant semen collector. <laughs> uh, go on, will you? Well, wait for it. Nurse Jackie then says, they have to be custom made and Rodrigo will measure you for it. No way. Yeah, and he says, do they come in extra small? Ah, Jesus, what's next? Now get this. She said, were you told it may get smaller after the operation as they have to move things about? Oh, geez, this just keeps getting better. Was he on the floor at this stage? He just burst out laughing. Then he said, he might as well become a lady boy if things get much worse. The missus asked, was there anything else they could try? Quick, tell me, because I think mine is just retreated up inside me at this stage. Calm as you like, Nurse Jackie says. You can always use the injection. What? Yeah. You can use an injection into your prick to enlarge it. Your man's missus says, won't that hurt? As quick as anything, Nurse Jackie jumps in and says, no, it's just a small prick. No way. Best bit, your man says, how do you know I have a small prick? And then they all just burst out laughing. <laughs> and, and that's... Um, I wrote it in a, in a style of totally non-politically correct. Um, they didn't care what they said about you because you can either hedge around it or you can hit it face on. Mm. And mm -hmm. I think when you have radical prosectomy surgery, you're being hit face on. There is no cotton wool push around you. Your, your things are going to happen mm -hmm. um, you, whether... Like, I mean, I was just unfortunate. I don't want anybody listening to this thinking they're going to end up with permanent erectile dysfunction and permanent incontinence and all mm -hmm. that type of thing. It mm -hmm. doesn't happen to everyone. It mm -hmm. happens to some. Mm -hmm. And I was just one of the lucky ones that it happened to, you know. One of the things that it also did was it took away my libido totally. Mm. Like, it just isn't there. And I said to her, as difficult as that is, that's actually a good thing because could you imagine having erectile dysfunction and not having a low libido? <laughs> I mean, that would just be, that would just be, you know, that would be a curse on everything. Well, so, as you say, um, nothing so bad that it couldn't be worse, right? Well, she, she, um, she just looked at me and said, well, 
it's you that it hasn't got the libido. I still have mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 Ray, I mean, your, your writing really does provide, because I've seen you on Twitter and you're a big social media blogger and developed quite a following. Mm. And I can see that it provides, you know, support and comfort and, I mean, certainly humor to many men. And here's the point, which, which they often find sorely lacking in their care. And so I'm wondering what you've learned through their reactions to your writing. When I went on Twitter and I started posting it and hashtagging it, suddenly I started, um, I wouldn't say people coming out of the woodwork, but suddenly men started following me. But the one thing, when people meet me and I talk about it, it does take them back a bit because I don't hide the fact. Um, there, there are things that happen in your life that aren't anything to do with something that you haven't done or that you have done. They just happen to you. And when things happen to you, it's not your fault. And there's no shame in that. The fact that I've ended up with incontinence and with permanent erectile dysfunction, that's just happened to me. You know, there was nothing I did that made that happen to me. I looked after myself. I, I wasn't grossly overweight. I was relatively fit. Um, I had a good diet. I never smoked or drank ever in my life. Mm. I never took any form of recreational drugs in my life. So I lived quite a good lifestyle. But you know, these things happen. And it's just one of those things. And when I meet people, I ex I'll explain to them and I, and I won't be behind the door about it. I'll just say it straight out um, as it is. And some people find that very refreshing. Some people are a bit taken back with it. And inevitably, they get used to it. And then they sort of say to me, no, I'm glad you talk like that. Or yeah. um, it helps me not yeah. feel so bad when I talk about it yeah. because let's be honest about it men are not the best um, people at talking about anything that happens below their belly button yeah, yeah. you know yeah. um, you know I have two daughters I never had sons in, in our house so it's always been women it's my wife my two daughters and then I was a real Irish um, man because I was a real mummy's boy my mother was my world to me mm -hmm. and um you know, when you look at their journey and when you, when you look at the journey of an individual who's born with a womb, they encounter things much earlier in life. Like they have the menstrual cycle very young in life. They have end up going to the doctors very young in life for, for checks and smear tests and everything. Men, we don't encounter that until something like prostate cancer hits upon us yeah. generally. You I, know? Think that's, uh, and, I think that's really, really important. In fact, one of the things I, I've definitely observed in some of the interactions I've seen with you and your followers is, you know, this, this idea that prostate cancer brings so many taboos and misunderstandings about the male body and its functions. And you've attempted to break through these with um, both your writing and, and your advocacy. And then I'm, I'm wondering if you can give some examples of how this has helped some of the men you work with. And and, and then I guess I'm interested in knowing how you think we can actually accelerate this process of, you know, better understanding, better acceptance, earlier engagement. Well, I think the way it's helped the men is we, we've actually talked about, I mean, we actually have a WhatsApp group going at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and there's there's a good few men in it. And actually, they're from Ireland, the UK and the US and Canada. And it was truly true interaction on um, social media we came about. And we, we started talking about it and it breaks down that barrier. Like I've had men phone me who, have gone, who are going in for the surgery because, and here's the strange thing. I have more women following me than I have men. And I've more women direct messaging me, asking me questions about prostate cancer than I do men. I mean, on behalf of their partners, you mean? 
Exactly. It could yeah. be their partner. It could be yeah. their father. Yeah. It could be yeah. their grandfather, their sibling, whatever, friend, whatever, mm-hmm. you know. And some of them have actually bought the books to give us presents to their whoever is, is going on that journey to try and help them with that. The main reason behind the books, well, there's two main reasons. The one is to raise awareness around prostate cancer, break down the language and the vocabulary that we use when we're talking about prostate cancer. And the other thing is both books, and I'm right, I'm finishing a third one at the moment on poetry. I don't take any money. I donate them fully to charity. So whenever mm-hmm. body, somebody buys it, the money just all goes to charity. But I mean, we can say words are very powerful. It's like a number of people who have gone on the prostate cancer journey when they've, first of all, they tell someone they've cancer and there's a lot of sympathy. And this is something that we've all found. And then they mentioned they've had prostate cancer. And it's almost like the sympathy is turned off on the person who's talking to them because they say things like, oh, aren't you the lucky one? It was just prostate cancer. Or mm-hmm. Isn't it, aren't you glad it was just that? Yeah. And it really frustrates and upsets them because they think, well, hold on a minute. You've no comprehension what we're actually going through. Yeah. Particularly those, I mean, I know, look, I know guys who are terminally ill. I know one um, guy, he was only 46 when he was diagnosed terminally ill with it. I, I read um, about another guy there. He was 36 when he was diagnosed with aggressive prostate cancer. I grew up thinking, yeah, prostate cancer, when I'm 70, I'll have a look at it, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was 53 when it came visiting me. And yeah, yeah. There, there are so many younger men. And for me, one of the things that happened was I was sexually abused as a child. And that revisited me after my prostate cancer examinations and everything. And one of the things I try to um, raise awareness about when a child has been sexually abused, people often say, well, why does someone wait till they're 50 or 40 to announce they were sexually abused? The reason any individual does that is because as a child, you don't have the vocabulary to explain what's happened to you. You've been told by the the perpetrator that it's a secret between you and them, or it's someone in society that nobody would believe would do it to you. Now, if you move forward 10 or 40 years when you're an adult and you're 50 years of age like I was, and you get prostate cancer, and you you, um, look at that, the vocabulary and the language you need to talk about prostate cancer to another person is something men aren't that familiar with. Yeah. I mean, how many men do you see sitting down at the pub talking about erectile dysfunction or how many of them will say, geez, do you know what? Um, strange thing happened to me last night. I'd, I had blood in my semen when I ejaculated. Yeah, it's very they, true. They would... Women do talk about that more. I know we, you and I have talked about that before. Do you, yeah. have, a, do you have another passage to read for us? And, um... Yeah, sure. So, I mean, this passage is from the other book, Nothing So Bad That It Couldn't Be Worse. And, and this is a strange an, encounter because what happened with this book was taking the piss out of cancer I wrote first. And when I gave it to the publisher, they said, no, you've got to write an introduction to this. So I did. And then when I wrote the introduction, they said, no, can you just leave taking the piss out of cancer to one side and write an entire book in the way you've written the, the, the introduction because we really like that um, descriptive passage. Mm-hmm. So there's a section in it that I tried to explain, you know, um, I'll read it anyway and I'll explain it then. It's, so it just reads, um, but this book is not simply about my childhood and the journey into adulthood. It is about an unfinished life and the evolution of me as a person. All these episodes that happened throughout my life are threads in the fabric that make me and their interwoven experiences formulate how I approach things in life, especially my journey with cancer. 
we are complex creatures and to simplify who we are does a disservice to us. To understand anyone fully, you first must understand their journey, their encounters, challenges, failures and successes they have. And I believe that the way I approached my prostate cancer and probably the reason I'm so outspoken about it Mm -hmm. and I, I don't care what I say is because I was silenced as a child when I was sexually abused. I didn't Mm. have the language. And what I've sort of said to myself is, you're not going to be silenced now. Mm -hmm. You've had another traumatic experience in your life and you're going to share that journey with others and you're going to help others. Because you know as well as I do, over 11,000 men die from prostate cancer in the UK every year. That's a staggering, we don't have the numbers for Ireland, but that's a staggering, staggering amount. It is, yes, um, yes. And, and the amount of men in America as well that are, are dying. And, and they don't know why. Um, if you're a Caucasian male, you have a one in eight chance. If you're a black male, you have yeah. a one in four chance. I mean, exactly. why? No one knows why. Mm. If your mother had breast cancer, you have a higher risk of getting prostate cancer. Mm. Mm-hmm. Bigger, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I also feel at times that the medical profession or general practitioners who we go for, who's our front line that we go to, they sometimes don't always think of prostate cancer for younger men because that's a common thread I found with younger men that I talked to. And I, I know I'm being very generous to myself, yeah. calling myself young at 50. But um, it's not the first thing in their head. If, if, no, you, if you're, you know, if, if you've got, if you're having low libido, if you've got um, having a problem getting erection, it's usually, well, you know, let's give you um, one of those stiffening pills. That should help you. Yeah. They, they very rarely would say, well, let's get a PSA test done. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, that's a, a massive, um, you know, challenge for, for most of the men. Most of the people I talk to have, you know, have, um, have found that to be the starting point that was hardest to, to achieve. And that's where language comes in and that's where telling your story comes in and that's where propping up all the other men who are on this journey comes in. Indeed, anyone, even a transgender woman, because they still have their prostate and mm-hmm. helping them. So when they do go to their GP, they turn around and say, you know, of X, Y, and Z, do you think it might be prostate cancer? Do you think I should get a PSA test done? Yeah, no, exactly. Because it, it won't be offered to you um, when you turn 50 unless you ask for it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So the power of words that, you know, you're helping to provide. Definitely. Um, you know, I think really does give lots of strength and, you know, and lots of confidence to, to these men. So on that note, can we can we finish with another passage from, you know, your choice, whether it's the, the yeah, first or the second sure. books? I'll finish with a, a small poem that I wrote in the Nothing So Bad That It Couldn't Be Worse. And I'll actually be inserted in the book of poetry that I've written now, which will be called The Dark Side of Silence, as that book will be out later this year. But this poem is called What If? And it's just, a, I do 90% of my writing under the, the light of the moon, because that's when my brain gets most active on these things. And it, it, there's a stillness in the air and, and in the environment. And Everything seems to be asleep but me, and it gives me time to to go to places that probably I wouldn't during the day because I'm too busy and there's too much going on. But this poem is called What If? What if I screamed my silent cries aloud? Would you think me mad? What if I gave up? Would you think me sad? What if I didn't exist? Would you miss me? What if I asked for a hug? Would you think me needy? What if I was just me? And would you still love me? What if I never spoke my fears? Would you think me brave? What if I said how I truly feel? Would you listen? What if I asked for forgiveness? Would you forgive me? 
what if it had all never happened? That's it. Raymond, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been such a pleasure and I know very inspiring for, for lots of our listeners. So many thanks. Listen, Claire, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful talking to you. Appreciate it very much. A transcript of this interview and links to Raymond's books are available in the program notes on our website, along with further information on diagnostics and treatment for prostate cancer and additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer. Please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.